The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at StandingStoneSupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code G. GDIY 20 at checkout to save 20%. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Like like we just said, there's not grouse around here. What do you tell those guys? Invest in a good pair of boots. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have trouble physically making it through long hunts? Is your dog always giving you that angry look telling you to keep up? You train your dog, but now it's time to train yourself. Rocky Mountain Hunt Strong is the company for any hunter that is looking for an effective fitness routine to get healthier and be able to hunt longer and harder. This company has merged fitness and the passion of hunting to help people like you and me continue to do what we love. From the Rockies to the Smokies and every field or prairie in between, this company can get you ready to go longer, cover more ground, and recover quicker. Go to RockyMountainHuntStrong.com and see their program for yourself. Use the discount code GDIY to save 15% and get to work. Train harder, hunt stronger, and recover faster. Welcome back to another week of GDIY, guys. Me and Adam are sitting here today. We're going to talk for the intro real quick, and then we're going to get to an episode with Philip Clevenger and Parker Street talking about Southern Appalachia grouse, more specifically Tennessee grouse hunting. Yeah, buddy, those unicorns that we always talk about. (laughs) Yep. So they were nice enough to have us up, and we really spent all weekend with them hunting and everything. And uh, so we've been hunting Tennessee for a few years now with with no luck. The only grouse I've seen and flushed in Tennessee has all been during the off season. So during the actual hunting season, I haven't seen or heard a flush. And uh, this this trip we went up there, we didn't get a grouse, we didn't even get a shot opportunity, but we did hear a few wild flushes. So that was. Uh, they're they're kind of disappointed like man y'all didn't even get to see one and we're ecstatic because we at least got to hear something yeah we're pumped about it that we even got to hear grouse and then uh a week later nick nick finally put one in the bag finally (laughs) after chasing them for years uh in tennessee finally got a southern appalachian grouse yeah so definitely uh took a lot of miles on the truck a lot of miles on the boots but 
there are birds down here. You just have to find them, and, and it's nothing like it was back in the day. I guess you can kind of say that on a lot of these upland birds, but uh, especially grouse down here in the south. I mean, back in the back in the 90s and stuff, they used to flush them all over the place in Tennessee and Georgia and North Carolina, and uh, you have a few diehard hunters still out there doing it, and they're, you really have to be a diehard to, to do it down here in this region. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Uh, you don't see a lot of other hunters, so uh, you do have the woods to yourself pretty much because, <laughs> yeah. there's, because of the lack of birds. But Parker talks a lot about that on the episode, um, how it used to be, and he mentions that 20 flushes a day wasn't normal, but it wouldn't be uncommon. And it's pretty interesting to hear him talk about how everything's changed and what's affected that, and, and we kind of put him on the spot uh, a little bit with his opinions on that stuff, but he wasn't afraid to share his opinions either. No, not at all. So, uh, Parker's been doing it for, for years and Phillips a little newer to it, but Phillips real active in the chapter. Parker's is too. They're, they're both involved in the RGS chapter up in Northeast Tennessee and, and Southern Virginia. So you'll kind of hear a, a lot about everything, uh, as far as grouse, the conditions get get into a little habitat talk. Some conservation always comes up with grouse hunters. Uh, we're great at being tailgate biologists, for sure. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, talking to them and and hunting with them. What else has been going on with you this week, Nick? I uh, got out there and chased the unicorn a little bit yesterday. Didn't uh, didn't get to bag one, but I actually heard another flush. Uh, so I was excited about that just 20 minutes out of the truck and it was actually a spot a little closer to home this time. I didn't go all the way out to the mountains in East Tennessee. So I was, uh, really wanting to hit this spot and, uh, just like, man, it would be nice to find some birds closer to home and, uh, got right out of the truck and saw a spot in the middle of the woods. And I'm like, that looks like a good spot. And so we go head over there and, and Rachel's working directly ahead of me. Lucy's out in front towards the left a little bit, and I'm watching them, and right to our right. <laughs> That's where the grouse was. Yep, go figure. Exactly where neither me nor the dogs are. So, Well, they've been called the king of game birds. You think the dogs were over there on the scent, and the bird had worked over you know, opposite direction of them? I mean, any way to tell? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I have no idea. But so uh, – yeah, I mean, between this weekend with Parker and Phillip and the following weekend, I finally bagged my first one in Tennessee and then hearing another one yesterday, it was, uh, it's, it's finally picking up a little bit, you know, paying yeah. the dues and, and putting in the time and effort. You can find these birds, but you really, you really have to want them a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'd be interested to, to know how many people listen to this and just shake their head when they hear <laughs> I shot one and I heard five this year. Good, good season. Yep. Now, <laughs> hey, come down to Tennessee. If you, if you think you have a bang up dog and you can find grouse anywhere, come put it to the test. Come down here in Tennessee and yeah, or, I think or North Georgia. Come, I don't <laughs> think anyone's going to make the trip. <laughs> well, it's, it's a challenge. It's out there. You let me know, you come on down and uh, we'll take you out and you can see just kind of, how bad these guys that have success down here in Tennessee and Georgia and North Carolina, how bad they've had to work to, to find those birds. For sure. Yeah. When I see a, a picture on one of the groups on social media of a Southern Appalachian grouse getting bagged, it's like, man, that's an accomplishment, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. How many pairs of boots did it take to get to that bird? Exactly. But uh, yeah, so it, it, it was really interesting yesterday. I was actually, 
got to hunt by myself for the first time for the first half of the hunt uh past few weeks i've kind of been hunting with other people and other dogs but i really got to pay attention to just my dogs and it was nice and quiet and and i really noticed just how lucy was working in particular her her style from if you go back to day one of grouse season for us this year up in wisconsin to yesterday i was very happy with how she's working it's kind of night and day at first you know she didn't have the confidence to really venture out and search and hunt on her own i mean she would a little bit but she was still just a really young dog just kind of figuring out what we were doing out in the woods at the beginning of the season and then yesterday you you can put her down with the dog now and she's going to independently hunt by herself and uh it, it was really kind of neat seeing the teamwork taking place between her and Rachel. Um, you know, we're on one path in particular and Rachel was working on the right side of the, of the trail and Lucy was on the left and they were kind of doing that Scooby-Doo thing where one goes in and the other one goes out. But, uh, they were honestly, I was watching them to where if one crossed the road real quick and then the other one would cross and they'd go to that same area that the other dog just came out of, I guess they could smell that they had already been there. And they would just kind of check it off and go somewhere else. So they weren't Man, working crazy. the same exact cover twice in a row. And I'm just sitting around like, all right, maybe that was a coincidence. But then I was really paying attention. They were doing it all morning. And uh, it's it just, I'm happy to see Lucy coming along, especially with so few bird opportunities uh, outside of Wisconsin and the trips that we've taken. It's, it's still kind of taking hold with her. And you can see her just get better and better hunting style out in the woods every weekend yeah i think you definitely have to have bird exposures to build a dog obviously we're not getting a lot of those here but i mean her search pattern and and her hunting style has obviously gotten i guess improved not that there was ever anything really wrong with it i don't think but it's improved just inexperienced yeah she's so she's gotten a little bit older and more experienced just with hunting even without the bird exposures it's helped her out and that's what I tell everybody. It's, oh, man, I, there's no birds. I'm not taking my dog out. I'm like, take your dog out. Still get plenty of you, you, work yeah, out of it. it they, they're going to figure it out. I mean, few and far between bird contacts is better than none at all. And uh, it, just going out there and just just getting used to the, the camps and the, and the trips. And then, you know, if you're cycling dogs in and out and one dog on the ground at a time, it, it, it's all – it may seem minor – but it all kind of plays into the bigger picture and and the dogs will figure it out and just over time they're going to get better and better at working with you in the woods keeping track of you in the woods knowing what cover to work and 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 all that and uh it's again it may seem trivial to some people but it's like just just get out there and go even if you don't have the birds you're sure as heck not going to find them sitting on the couch yeah it gets them into a routine and i guess that way once you are getting into birds it's that many variables that many less variables you have to worry about because they're already used to the routine of waiting in the truck and and you've been rotating your dogs quite a bit because we've been hunting together and with joe and whoever else we're hunting with so we might have you know definitely four dogs sometimes more so a lot of times you're rotating uh rachel and, and lucy you got to hunt with them 
together yesterday so that yeah. was also not a first you've hunted them together yeah we i've hunted them together nice but change of pace usually there's more dogs on the ground whether we're you know the bluegrass uplanders i have a bunch of dogs out it seems like every time i have them on the ground at the same time there's other dogs that play and so i i really enjoyed just spending a couple hours in the woods with just my dogs yesterday morning and uh really kind of seeing e- each of them complement each other a little bit more in the field and it's stuff that you just don't get to really take in if you have a big group of people or a huge group of dogs out there on the ground yeah and the the longer trips we've been doing it makes sense to rotate them out there's no need to run run them both the whole time but if you're out for a couple hours by yourself let them go let them go and it's only for one day makes sense absolutely i've noticed it doesn't take long for mitchell to to wear down uh, last weekend when we were hunting, I ran them all day Saturday, you know, six or eight hours of hunting with some breaks in there. And then, he, you know, towards the end of the day, he was pretty worn out. Pretty worn out. Yeah, he wasn't doing much. Yeah. So. so that's one of the nice things about having multiple dogs is uh, just you cycling them in them out and you kind of get to see see each dog independently but then you always have a fresh dog if you're cycling them in and and out but uh yeah anyway i know we're kind of rambling just catching up here you you you're uh busy working all weekend so you didn't get out so that was just our catch up of the of my hunt yesterday yeah i actually uh ran mitchell yesterday afternoon so he did get some exercise but i just took him out just for exercise and I don't think he really knows the difference. I mean, we're no. we're going through the woods. You know, one time I'm carrying a gun and wearing orange, and the other time I'm whatever I've got on. But he did get a little lesson with uh, a deer encounter yesterday, yeah. so he got a little correction there. Got to hit the collar on it. Yeah, it was one of those opportunities where I saw deer up ahead and was able to anticipate that it was going to unfold yeah. and and be ready for it and could see it all take place. So it was good deal well uh we'll get to the episode here in a second but first we we really just wanted to thank everybody uh especially our patreons for uh supporting the podcast we got a really good response from the first spotlight that we did last week with canines for warriors and uh just want to let everybody know that we do have the some swag from canines for warriors that we're going to offer up as a giveaway to just the patreon users and uh i think that's kind of going to be the norm with our spotlight companies moving forward is most of them have some stuff that they want to offer up and and the uh, patreon patrons they uh, directly support these companies by the donation that we're going to give at the end of the month and so we really appreciate them if you're interested sign up we do have a uh, fairly large instagram and facebook giveaway coming up here in a few weeks so be on the lookout for that and the patreon users will get their names in the hat more so than just for sure just doing it on instagram so if you haven't followed us on instagram and facebook find us be on the lookout for that and if you enjoy this podcast and you want really want to help us out as well as just you know the minor helping out of the uh spotlight companies every month then uh, be sure to join and check that out at patreon.com forward slash gundog yourself if you're currently in the market for a kennel then be sure to check out gunner kennels gunner kennels is the only kennel that's five star crash rated from the center for pet safety the double wall rotomodal construction ensures it holds up in all types of weather and conditions also gunner kennels has a lifetime warranty these kennels are built to last a lifetime and gunner stands behind that 
Gunner also has all the accessories you could need from fan kits to help keep them cool, performance and orthopedic pads to help keep them comfortable and ready to go after long travels, and even tie-down straps to help ensure there's no worries for the kennel moving or sliding around in your truck. So if you need man's best kennel for man's best friend, head on over to gundogityourself.com and click on the Gunner link. Be sure to purchase your kennel, accessories, and even gift cards for holidays and birthdays through our link, and it will go a long way in helping out the podcast. All right, welcome back to another week of GDIY. Me and Adam are up here in Northeast Tennessee with Philip Clevenger and Parker Street. Philip's here to kind of talk about the current status of Southern Appalachian grouse while we grill Parker and figure out why he shot all the grouse and there's none to be found now. How are you guys doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good, y'all. Doing well. Well, we're thankful for you guys inviting us up here and and taking us out and trying to teach us the ways of the Tennessee unicorn. And uh, we actually went out on a hunt this morning, and and we had a few few flushes that we didn't really put eyes on the birds, but we heard it. And so uh, for Tennessee grouse, that's kind of a kind of a good good outing for us. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to watch your dog work, Philip. Uh, you know, you got a German short hair and. and- we had a couple of German short hairs on the ground today, but uh, seeing a dog that's in the grouse woods all the time, I think there's some genetic stuff that makes the dog work closer, but also just being in the grouse woods and kind of knowing that game. Have you have you done any training to, to make her work that way? Tell us about that. I think I really just kind of lucked up with her. Um, I've never had to reel her in or anything like that. She uh, just kind of came natural to her. So you're doing your own line you breed short hairs and so what are you concentrating within your line when you plan these breedings to to bring out the the grouse side of things because i know setters are really the quote-unquote grouse dogs yes they are <laughs> but uh short, allegedly you've yeah. got a short hair too yeah and two setters right yeah, they, they outnumber the short yeah. hair but uh, short hairs, it seems like more and more people are starting to use them in the grouse wood. So is there something that you kind of concentrate in when you go planting your litters and uh, trying to develop a better dog every time? Uh, mainly, uh, the biggest thing I would say is just breeding brains. I mean, we're hunting the king of open game birds. I don't want to sound kind of corny, but I mean, they are the smartest bird in the woods. Um, so you want to match the dog to the task. Um, so... Really, brains is the the most important part. Um, of course, then nose, uh, just a good search pattern, and you know, it'll it'll get there. So, Parker, you've been hunting these birds for quite a while. Obviously, there's there's a difference in numbers, but over the years, have you seen a difference in how the birds act that requires a different type of dog to hunt them? Not a, not especially that it would take a different type of dog to hunt them. Um, they have the birds that have seemed to change, and it depends on who you talk to and their last hunt, what they'll tell you. But it does seem that the birds seem to run more now than they did. And of course, this morning, yeah. uh, like you and I, um, dogs were looking up in the trees. We you know we had a flush come out of the trees, so birds can be anywhere. And Phillips, right it. To make a grouse dog, which there are very few in the southern Appalachians anymore because there aren't many grouse. And, it, and I think old-timers will tell you that it, it would take at least 100 contacts. 
And most of the dogs today in the Southern Appalachians never have 100 contacts in seven lifetimes. Um, so what Phillip's saying with brains, a dog has, has to be smart enough to figure out, especially in how to differentiate between a running bird. And there are times the birds will run, time birds will hold tight, time the birds will be in the trees. Um, and it, it takes a smart dog. If you've got a dog with brains, they in the, that way that they can compute what they're taking in with their nose and then know how to uh, or know what to do with that. Um, if a dog doesn't know what to do with it, if it's all run and doesn't have the brain to figure it out, you're not going to have a very productive dog. So what do you think uh, makes the birds act different like that? One time they're running, one time they're holding tight. Do you think it's weather, terrain? I have no idea. You're talking about a bird with a brain the size of a the size of a pea, and why they do what they do, um, we would we would never know. Later in the year, when you get into February and it gets close to the birds grouping back up once again to breed, um, I mean, you know, up north they call them stupid chicken, um, and you would about do that here because you you could physically watch the birds, you can see them move around and hardly fly. Um, but typically this time of year from from Thanksgiving till now birds are pretty skittish and, and a lot of that is, has to do with predation um, a lot of it has to do with how much hunting pressure is placed on them as well so you mentioned it takes quite a number of bird contacts to make a bird dog you feel like the Great Lakes grouse seems to be a completely different ball game than down here do you feel like supplementing the great lake contacts with the birds and i know this is kind of a t- sticky subject for a lot of people but uh just give us your opinion do you think that you can take the bird contacts up there and be have a better dog down here for it absolutely um a while, any wild bird is going to be good for the dogs whether it be a, a rough grouse in um, in the UP, um, or it be a, a pheasant in South Dakota or Iowa, or it be a quail in, in Georgia, those wild contacts are, um, you know, the, they have, these dogs have to have them. You know, a lot of us have to supplement pen raised birds, either it being farm raised quail, um, chucker, or, or a pigeon, um, and it's, it's still just not the same. Uh, yeah. The unpredictability of, of a wild bird, regardless of where it is, is, is what it takes. And, and then again, that goes back to having a dog, like Philip said, a dog with brains um, that can figure out the game that they're, you know, that they're in. It's life or death for them every day. I mean, yeah. And most of the time with us, they win. Yeah. Most yeah. of the time. That makes sense. Philip, how long have you been uh, grouse hunting and into bird dogs and everything? Uh, really just about probably last four or five years um lucked into good short hair right off the bat um and the rest is history really um got her from a kennel in north wilkesboro north carolina um really just lucked into her all around uh great hunt pattern um natural retrieve i mean if you shoot it she's gonna track it find it and get it bring it back to you not maul it uh she really does really does a good job 
Have you had to do a lot of training with her to get her to that point? Or I mean, I know you said you lucked up with the retrieving. Have yeah, um, really, um, especially on the retrieve side. I mean, it all just came natural. Um, I've not had to force fetch or anything like that. I know a lot of guys do, um, and I try to kind of stay away from that and and just hopefully work off natural ability. Yeah, that makes sense. What about you, Mr. Parker? What's your uh, train? What's some of the training methods you've used? I, I know you said earlier you've had bird dogs since you were ten years old, and I won't tell everyone how long you've had bird dogs because then they'd know how old you are. <laughs> but what are some of the training methods you use? The best training method is wild birds. They'll do um, they'll do more for dogs than any than anything. Um, you know, different people want to do different things, and different dogs dictate different things. If you I mean, you, you know, the world is full of trainers, and um, some do it the same. Some build the fa- foundation differently. Uh, you look at the old Delmar Smith books, yep. um, George Hickok, of course, uh, and then Delmar Smith's sons, Ronnie, and, and those guys, they're continuing that on. And they've, you know, what's interesting, they have changed methods. Um, point of contact for woe was always the neck for years. And now, you know, those guys are, are using a waste, uh, using the waste of the dogs, which I like doing that. Um, if, if you've got a dog, which a young dog that you're trying to, to make behave and, and have manners, it's, it becomes a steering wheel uh, for them. Uh, but there's different things. For me, I, I want a dog that, that minds, and, and that comes with the bit ability, and something we hadn't touched on becomes the bit ability of the dogs. Um, but it, you know, um, if they've got brains, they can figure out what you're wanting. You know, yeah, you want drive, you want that, but drive without brains is a train wreck for most hunters, especially young hunters like Philip that hadn't been hunting but four or five years. You, you've talked about earlier today and just kind of alluded to it again. You, you kind of prefer the method of the dog figuring it out as nature intended, almost let the, let the bird teach the dog. Obviously, like we've already touched on, and I think everybody already knows, wild bird contacts are hard to come by down here. And and you mentioned pen rays and, and all that. You have to do what you have to do. But if you're not willing or able to travel a good distance pretty regularly, it's hard to build a bird dog down here. And and even even on top of that building a bird dog that dog that's effective down here it, it's hard to stay motivated and enthusiastic when you're constantly coming out here and, and you're literally chasing a ghost almost so how how do y'all look at that when somebody comes up to you i know i know philip you're you're kind of the head man of the rgs chapter here and parker was previously how do you get more people involved when you can't really just take them out and get them on birds and then especially if they have a young dog, like, hey, how do I get my dog to hunt grouse? And it's like, like we just said, there's not grouse around here. What do you tell those guys? Invest in a good pair of boots. <laughs> <laughs> um, that and, and like Philip, and he can tell you more about it. Pigeons, pigeons on a pole, a pigeon on a pole, a pigeon in a launcher to simulate the best you can. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean... You wanna you wanna make sure that you do lay a good groundwork, and the dog knows what to expect. But I mean, there's no replacing like we've we talked about already. But there's no replacing wild bird contacts, and I mean, 
my wife will be the first to tell you from October to February, I'm in the mountain with pretty much without fail. So your advice is to get boots, spend time in the mountains, make date nights during the week with your wife, uh, to, to still the new hunter, what do they have to do to prep though? Cause there's a lot of prep that goes into this. Cause if you want any success on these, on these ghosts, you really have to do your homework. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that I would say, uh, Google earth is a big help. I know there's several different map systems out there now available, uh, for purchase, um, that you can use to find where, you know, prime habitat is um, and I mean they've got it pretty much for every state I know they've got stuff like Onyx stuff like that I mean that stuff works great you can take little snippets from here and there and kind of build a pretty good game plan and even find little loops that you can hunt continuously from the truck without having a backtrack so but I mean really boots on the ground getting in the mountain just spending time uh reading books on habitat, what to look for, food sources. I mean, the whole nine. I mean, every little bit helps. And touch on something Philip just said, and that's something he and I have spent some time together with, or uh, different forest types, you know, what what grouse use, what is, uh, what's productive to spend time in, what is not productive to spend time in. Um Foods again. Food sources are a big thing. If if you have got abundant hard mast, if you if there if there is no mast, if there isn't any mast, what do you look for? Yeah. Um, so those are the type of things that you and, and you can learn. I mean, you can read about it. Um, there's there's things out there if you study. Uh, there's books. There's uh, there's thousands of books in print. About a rough grass. I've got some at the house that, my time, they're thicker and, you know, as thick as a, a Los Angeles phone book and <laughs> stuff, you know. So what are some of those things you look for? You're talking about different mass crops and stuff. Help us out a little bit. The Southern Appalachians, acres, and, uh, you know, st- white, white oaks especially, and that's that's not only with grouse, that's with anything in the forest. Um and with that mass crop, with a hard mass crop, and just talking about acorns, and you can look at the Appalachian grouse research study that was done in the states of, of North Carolina, um, West Virginia, and I, and I think Georgia. Uh, you can look at that, and, and you can get online and Google Appalachian Grouse Research Project, and it'll tell you those acorns are... Um, are very important. You, you kill a bird, and you look in its uh, you look in its gut, and you see acorns. And it's amazing at how a bird the size of a baney rooster in a rough grouse, how it can swallow that acorn, which leads you to the fact you see why you find them sometimes in roads because they have to have grit to to help chew that up. Crunch it up. Um, so acorns are, are a huge thing. Um, Greenbrier is another. Um, later in the year, something that holds on, it's not necessarily preferred, but something they eat is uh, sumac, um, grapes, uh, and a lot of your cove-type forest on, on the northern-facing slopes that contain 
grape vines. Um, if the, if you do have uh, if you've got an abundant grape crop, you will find those birds in there. Now that leads us to this very thing. That is why habitat is so important. What happens in the southern Appalachians, like what we've had this year, you know, last Saturday it was 74, 75 degrees. So what happens, you get into February and March, and you get several 74, 75 degree days, and then you have a hard freeze. Well, guess what? Your oaks have budded out. And then you have a freeze, it kills kills those buds, so you have no mash crop. So what are grouse going to eat? What are turkeys going to eat? What are deer going to eat? There is no mass crop. It becomes tough. So they become dependent on the browse and, and the thing that early successional habitat is things with, with heavy stem density, black bar, uh, blackberry briars, green briars, the thing that come along with early successional habitat. Then not only grouse, but all the animals in the forest become dependent on that soft mast. Um, because it tends to not be as, maybe it hasn't bloomed already, uh, dogwood yet being another. So I'm hearing that we need to timber the forest so that we have the soft mass and the early successional growth habitat, but we also need white oaks for the acorns. So what's the... What's the recipe on that? Like, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> um, and of course, this comes out of silviculture, and, and I'm not a I'm not a botanist. I'm not a silviculturist. I'm I'm a grouse hunter. That um, I'm the guy, and you two guys, the military, you you learn what to do, and then you learn why to do it, and yeah. uh, you know that both of you guys. So um, it's it was a passion of mine, and I and I loved, and I'm not going to get deep into my testimony, and different things, but grouse hunting made a difference for me as a boy. Sure, and. So I really studied, you know, some of this stuff and then was put on a collaborative 11 years ago for the Cherokee National Forest. And I'm on there with people that know a whole lot. I mean, these people have been to college, they're educated, Mm. and I'm the dummy sitting at the table and and I didn't want to be that guy. Um, So, you know, studying behind this... what what happens when you go you've got again you've got different forest types and we talk about acorns if and depending on the forest type in which you're in if they want to um so they go in and we're going to leave um i wish they would leave 20 percent basal area let's be realistic let's say they leave 40 percent basal area which that's how many trees are left in an area we had that discussion you would leave the best oaks of the bunch so after you cut year one, um, you're going to have to come back in, and you can't just leave it because if you do, you've got other seed sources there. Uh, in the southern Appalachians, uh, striped maple would be one, and it's depending, on, again, on forest type and elevation. Striped maple would be one that would be there. Uh, pop Tulip poplar is huge, and in some pines. So how are we going to, how is the oak going to compete against these seed sources that are laying there? It's called a match. And that is why <laughs> that is why the Forest Service uh, and people say, why are they burning? Why are they burning? Well, what that is doing, it's improving the health of the forest. After you go through and you do a you do a timber harvest, and you're managing this for wildlife. You're managing for oak. Um, you leave the best oaks in the area of the trees that you do leave, and 
Then you come through a year later, year two later, you strike a match to it. So what that's doing, that's, that's burning the other seed sources because oak is fire tolerant of this. And so it, it lets, you know, so then oaks come up. Then about year 10, again, depending on elevation, sunlight, forest type, um, year 10, they'll do what is called a TSI or a timber stand improvement where they will come in and they'll do a, a hack and squirt. And they'll get rid of the, or they're supposed to be getting rid of the non-desirables, and then they will we'll squirt it with um, Roundup or something. And and um, so what's happening is you're regenerating oak that way. Does that happen on all of it? No, it doesn't. Um, is that the classic prescription? Yes, it is. If you're trying to regenerate oak, again, it depends on forest type, but but acorns are a huge. Uh, are a huge food for everything that utilizes a forest and that early successional habitat is huge for the greater majority of the species that use the forest. So is this an issue of is it's planned out that way and it's not being followed through or is it not even being planned that way to begin with? You can open up, and, and I won't just use one forest, but you can open up any of your southern forests, southern Appalachian forest, um, forest service management plans. And it will tell you, depending on forest type, you can have up to um, 17% early successional habitat. So let's say you take a, a, a forest in a state. Uh, we'll use Cherokee, for example. The north end of the Cherokee is 325 plus thousand acres right now. At the current level, we have one-tenth of one percent early successional habitat. Mm. When their own forest plan calls for eight to 17, again, depending on forest type. So how is it? I mean, everything you're saying makes sense, and, and we've heard some of this stuff. This is probably news to some people, but but bird hunters, a lot of us, we're passionate about this stuff because we're passionate about getting out in the woods with our dogs and, and harvesting a bird occasionally. How How does this make so much sense to us, but it doesn't make sense to everyone else? <laughs> That's what not is, a loaded question at all. Well, I mean, what's <laughs> what's their what's their goal, though? I mean, seriously, I'm not trying to okay. set anybody up. What's well, the and, goal? Well, and think about it. And it's not only for for hunters. Um, Just healthy forests and, it's, and it's fires. Healthy, well, it's, yeah, it's a myriad of things. If you look at, at someone who is just who is a bird watcher, you know, I love songbirds. I you know, um, if if you look at them and if you lose a desired habitat, not only are you affecting wildlife or game species, but you're also affecting non-game species. So, um, you know, even the the bird watchers, that golden wing warblers would be the big one. A whippoorwill. When's the last time you heard a whippoorwill? Um, if you get to talking about quail, how many? How often do you see meadowlarks anymore? Um, and, and what happens in school from the time we're little? Don't cut the tree. But if you get behind the science on that and you see, if you begin to understand the 
the oxygen oxygen CO2 exchange in an active growing tree versus one that's 80 years old, you're going to see that active growing tree is much better for the environment. Um, don't get me wrong. There needs to be places where there are old growth because that's nature that you have places. But Different nature, stages. Different stages. But nature also says there is a fire. If there is a fire breaks out right now, what are we going to do? We're going to run to put it out. Absolutely, because of the loss of life and, and people's homes and property. and property. So we don't let nature take care of itself. Yeah. So behind sound practice of management, then we do. Then you get groups of people that, because they've been taught forever, that if you cut a tree, it's terrible. See, that is a perverted ideology. It's wrong. And, and I think now that you're seeing the fires out west, if you refer back to the fires that hit the southern Appalachians and Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg, of course, part of that was in a Table Mountain Pine Plantation, which was it's a tender box, brother. <laughs> if you look at you know what hit Hot Springs, um, you begin to see how bad it could be. You had you had had a southern Appalachian pine beetle, or a, excuse me, a pine beetle kill, um, and then on top of that, you had the hemlock woolly adelgid that it hit the hemlocks. Then on top of that, you've had the emerald ash borer. So you've got all this fuel because we haven't cut anything. You've got all this fuel laying there and then either a lightning strike or, or heaven forbid, an act of, ar- of arson and you've got a huge fire. If you've got a healthy forest, that isn't so likely to take place. It, it may start up, but it's not going to take away an entire mountain range because it, this is it's a product of decades of mismanagement. mismanagement. And, and it's hard to get people that that aren't passionate about the birds it's kind of it's confusing to the non-hunter because they're like how do you claim to be doing something for a species and then you want to go out and kill it and and it's and that's the hardest part to convey to them and it's like i actually care more about the management of the habitat because i care about the species and it's hard for people to relate to that because they just see an animal but they never even go into the woods. And so they don't understand that species have to have multi-level successional forest, different stages of life. And all these species require different stages of forest. And so it's, it's hard to convey that to people. And when all they're hearing is you just want to kill more birds. Correct. We're conservationists. And, you know, one of the things that, that I was watching happen within the grouse hunting community and the bird hunting community, we've seen a lot of the old guys just quit, um, you know, age number one, and I'm beginning to see why. Uh, and, and then you don't, and then there's not that many, you know, you don't have many birds, and it, it makes it difficult. And I kept thinking, man, you know, this is, this is a, a great thing. Um, I, I consider myself a conservationist. I, um, it's it, you know some people call it a sport. I don't. Um, I see it as as standing up for the forest for it to be healthy. So I looked to Philip and and some of these other younger guys, and I said, hey, you know, y'all like to hunt. Let's talk about this. And and tried to tried to bring these guys on. And Philip will tell you, I don't pull a trigger on a grouse unless it is handled properly with the dog by the dog. I, 
you know, the Food City, Ingalls, Kroger's, Publix, they all got chicken, man. Um, and so unless well, you actually carry the broomstick out there with you a lot of the time, a broomstick, a camera, um, you know, an, an old shotgun, um, Walker cane. <laughs> So you are touching on, and and we're we're really making old jokes, but again, you're you're not that old. Um, you're touching on like the younger generation, you know, guys like us that are in our mid thirties, kind of taking this over. Because walking through the woods today, I'm like, man, this is this is hard. We heard two grouse today. What's it going to look like for my kids? So there's a a younger generation, which is us. Philip, tell us. Kind of what you do with Rough Growl Society and and things you're doing to to spearhead for us. Well, I mean, really, that is the main reason why I took on any sort of role with RGS um, in our chapter is because I've got two two sons, uh, almost nine and then five years old, Jason Mason. But uh, you know, one day I don't plan on quitting raising bird dogs anytime soon i i love them as well as yep. they do but uh you know i i want there to still be birds for them to hunt hopefully one day um uh, drive them crazy just like they have me but that is that is the main reason because i feel like we should leave it better than we have found it and we don't need to give up we really need to push forward and fight hard right now because it is a key time Either you can do something about it, or you can just gripe about it. I, I told Philip, and, and I'll say this about that. I told Philip when we first started this thing, when I got to getting these guys involved, Philip's a guy who wouldn't leave me alone. Hey, tell me where there's a grouse. Tell me where there's a grouse. I'm not telling you where there's a grouse. I'm not doing that. And he kept on. I thought, you know, this guy's serious. And, and I told him, for me, you know, I'm, I'm 51. And, and I can remember when, when I was – in my late 20s and early 30s, the hunt we made today, flying 20 different birds was not an impossibility. Um, and, uh, you know, why, why would I just, I guess, you know, I'm a fighter, and I guess why would I just lay down and quit? I'm, I know that I'll never see those bird numbers again here, but his boys might. But yeah. if I quit and I just say, eh, it's not worth it, What's that saying for his boys? Yeah. You know, so it's kind of a thing where you own it. Well, I'm glad you kind of touched on that because we talked about this earlier today also. what What is y'all's opinion on, are y'all seeing the message actually being received by people our age or even younger? Because we we're talking about like, like Parker, your generation, it's y'all are kind of, y'all remember what it could be. And then us, we we wish it we lived back then. Yeah. But is it? You see the message actually crossing over to younger people to where we can hopefully kind of keep that optimism going to where we can get back there. You're talking about a ruffled grouse. Yeah. That's what yeah. we hear. Yeah. Ruffled grouse. Ruffled grouse. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, what I would say, uh, coming in, I guess. It's a double-edged sword in a way, but, you know, the old-timers kind of gripe about a three- or four-bird day, but a three- or four-bird day for a, a up-and-comer 
is a pretty good day. So, you know, that's something that keeps me going. I mean, I was off a couple of weeks for Christmas and New Year's, walked something like 42 or 45 miles in that time. <laughs> um, <laughs> had several good bird contacts, but I mean, there was three or four days where we didn't fly a bird either. But those good days and great days just keep you hooked. I mean, you just got to keep thinking around the next bend or in the next holler, there's going to be a bird there for your dog to find. And I mean, another good thing that I'll say is, you know, talk about hunting for the gun almost. If I'm in the back of my dog's mind like she's in the back of mine. So we're constantly thinking of each other of well where's he at where is she at and really you need to build that uh, teamwork to where you work together to find the birds i think that's a big connection uh some people don't understand how for example nick nick and joe and i could drive four and a half hours up here get four bird contacts today total and be excited about it um and we go plenty of days without any, but it's, you're out there. Yeah. It's a, it's a team effort with you and your dog. And that's what keeps me going, going back in the woods is, is I get to spend time with my dog. And if I get bird contacts, great. If I get a chance at a bird, even better. Um, what about your boys? You've got two boys. Do you get them out in the woods yet to grouse on? I mean, it's not exactly always enjoyable walking through some of that stuff. So how are you getting them involved? It's funny you ask. Uh, I actually took my youngest son. Uh, there's one place that I've got that's not horrible to walk. Uh, but man, Parker's been out through there a few times. It's got room for his walker. But anyway. <laughs> but anyway, we we'll walked. Take you out of We're giving kneecaps. you a hard time. We'll take him out of his kneecaps. I'm just walk. wondering why we didn't go to the uh, the easy place to walk today, you know? <laughs> why? <laughs> you wouldn't have looked like this. Yeah, if exactly. His arthritis yeah. wouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah. a great drug. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I'd say, you know, really we just stuck to the road when I take them and most newer hunters that's what i would recommend um you don't want to get them out there without briar pants and and briar <laughs> shirts which are a must and and appalachians if you're going to find birds if you're bleeding you're probably in the right spot <laughs> but uh but anyway <laughs> my youngest son uh walking in he did great but we got about a mile and a half back in there and he was like he looked at me at me he was like daddy he was like Please carry me. So I ended up carrying him all the way back to the oh, truck. Man. So I've done that with Parker. Now let Philip do it with me. <laughs> well, whatever it takes to keep keep the young ones interested. Um, you know, I think as parents and folks that are interested in this stuff, we've got to do stuff to keep our kids interested in it. And uh, you know, I've done the same with my son sitting in a deer stand. It might be eight o'clock and he says, I'm ready to go. And I'm thinking, we just got here, but okay, let's go. We'll go do something else just as long as you're happy and you, and you have a good experience with this. So it's conservation. And, and, you know, here's the thing, guys, to a certain degree, you relay it. It's, it's biblical in the fact that the Lord has given us this. 
and it's up to us to take care of it and take care of it right. Mm-hmm. Do it right. And and I and I'll tell you this, it it sure beats sitting on the couch. One thing I'll I'll touch back on um, as far as we're talking about getting away, getting in the mountain. You don't really realize how much that you need that disconnect. Uh, I recently started a new job at work, and you know, just crazy busy. He doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm employed, but anyway, a um, little bit more stress. But you don't realize how much the mountain can disconnect you from the everyday hustle and bustle and all the the crap you put up with, and it'll recharge you. I mean, just getting up and, and seeing what God's provided for us and, and made for us, um, blessed us with. That's a, a, uh, a common thread for us with non-hunters too, is they're wanting to, wanting to get out and enjoy the mountain just like we are uh, and in a different way. So I think the more we can understand each other like that, the more we kind of get some traction on some of the stuff you're talking about with conservation. Um, I, I enjoy hunting with other people. I mean, we had a great time today oh, hunting yeah. together, but I was telling Nick on the ride over here, I really enjoy just being out in the woods by myself with my dog. I don't have to worry about if there's a road close by, you know, if he's out of range for a couple minutes, I don't need to be worried about it or blowing a whistle and just get out there and just enjoy it. You know, there's nothing like it. So obviously we hunted Tennessee today, but we're kind of in the northeast corner of Tennessee. So you get the opportunity to hunt kind of three different states close by. You have North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. Is there really a big difference in any of the states in your opinion? Yes. Uh, They're not afraid of using a chainsaw. Which state is that? In Virginia or North Carolina. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll say this. There seems to be more early successional habitat in Virginia and North Carolina on those two national forests. Why that is, I don't know. Um, Is there enough habitat there? Absolutely not. It's way behind where it used to be. And... um, but there does, you know, this year, and Philip and I could both attest to it, we've both flown many more birds in Virginia and North Carolina than what we have in Upper East Tennessee. I actually hunted one day where I was in all three states at the same day. Wow. So other than those three states, tell us about some of the trips that y'all take a little further north. Yeah, uh We've, we've been going up the UP for the last few years and just bird numbers up there that we have found have been, you know, much better than down here. Of course, they've got a lot of state land and, I mean, you can't hardly drive down the road without hearing timber projects going on. I mean, everywhere you turn. We, this year, I mean, we drove for probably a mile with logs on each side of the truck i mean just stacked up for a mile so i mean that tells you that they're i mean continually creating habitat and it is a sustainable resource right is what timber is right yeah and the logs you're seeing stacked up on the side of the road that day that's not what's helping the same grouse you're seeing that day right that's the grouse for 10 years yeah Yeah, exactly so so when you go venture up north about 
how how overwhelming is it almost you go like you said you'll go down here and flying three or four birds you may not even see three or four birds but you'll hear them and you go up there and it's not uncommon to come across three or four birds an hour i mean how overwhelming is that to you and and also your dog like does your dog just get bird drunk and go you know go crazy for a little bit ah not really um i think once they get out of the truck and stretch their legs a little bit um it's it's really kind of normal business um not much of a change from down here it's i mean the terrain's different but i mean the bird to a certain extent is the same i feel like around southern appalachians they're more liable to use the terrain to their advantage i mean they can get to the edge of the road and pitch off in a holler and they're they're not going to have any scent for you know a couple hundred yards probably other than what what they would catch winding but uh up there, I mean, they'll still have a little bit of scent even if they do fly. So your dog can use that to its advantage. It's, you know, I, I've been to northern Pennsylvania, and a lot of times when you're hunting Wisconsin, hunting Michigan, you're hunting state, and, and to a certain degree even some county land and some paper company land. What's interesting, and I, I enjoy hunting public land, land that anyone can hunt and and. If you look at central Appalachia, you go up into northern Pennsylvania, northern central central Pennsylvania, the Allegheny National Forest, they're not afraid to cut 35 acres and spend the money to fence it to keep the deer out of it where they can regenerate oaks, So it, where they can regenerate oak so the deer don't eat it. They, they were putting up six-foot fences the first time I went there. I thought, first thing I thought is, man, the Forest Service still cuts timber here, <laughs> Um, and then the second thing I thought was, what is this fence? And then I realized the abundance of the deer there. Um, so I saw that, and it was interesting to me to go to to hunt the Allegheny National Forest and to see that they have an active timber program. They're actually cutting timber, um, which is, again, it is sustainable. In other words, it comes back. It grows back, and it does a lot of great things for the environment while it is growing. It also provides, you know, wood for many different products from paper to houses to uh, screens on cell phones to screens on uh, on television. That comes from wood pulp. Um, just a lot of things that, that we – so it kind of helps. It helps – well, it doesn't kind of. It does help the economy. And it's amazing to see the acres and acres – of timber cut on the Allegheny. I know in the the National Forest in West Virginia on the Monongahela, they have got a great timber program there as well. Uh, so the question becomes is, you know, why, why in the Southern Appalachian Forest being the Jefferson, Washington in Virginia, the, the Pisgah, Nantalahela in North Carolina, the Cherokee in the state of Tennessee, uh, South Carolina, and then what's and then what's in Georgia? Why are they not following the same mandate? It's the same national forest. Why are they not doing it? And that is a million dollar question that I think a lot of people who are conservation minded are asking. So, what can we do individually to get involved and, and help help this problem? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> 
you need to be contacting the local forest ranger's office, number one, and let them know that you're wanting to see early successional habitat. But you can't stop there. We also have to be in contact with our state senators, with our state representatives, with our congressmen and women, and be in contact with them and let them know and let them know why. Um, and join RGS, join the Rough Grouse Society. Uh, a lot of people say, well, my funds don't stay local. Yes, they do. Part of those do. Plus, it goes to paying people to stand up to so that we can have timber harvest because I can promise you there are three to four times more people who will say, again, like we talked before, mm-hmm. don't cut that tree because that's what they've always heard. So what RGS is, it stands as a voice of conservation, the same as the National Wild Turkey Federation, um, the same as, as DU, same as Ducks Unlimited or Quail Forever. It is a conservation organization. The more members you have, the stronger of a voice that you have. Um, so, you know, those are ways that you can make a difference, become active, help with, with habitat projects. But your state senators, your state rep- your state senators, and your federal congressmen, they need to know um, that you are supporting this because ultimately it is the federal government was m- the majority of our public land. The TWRA uh, in the state of Tennessee, the small game management, um, you know they they have they have say in this as well because they give money to the national forest. Um, and, and they need to be told how you feel and what you're seeing or not seeing. So uh, what's the plan for tomorrow? We're going to try to hit it again. We kind of got rained out this afternoon. Uh, what are you thinking for tomorrow, Philip? Boots on the ground, boys. <laughs> that's the only way you're going to find birds. Yeah, that's uh, true. You got a spot picked out. Yeah, some spots <laughs> picked out. We won't say that on here, of course. <laughs> no no honey holes provided. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, we'll uh, – We'll hit, get up, hit it hard, and see if we can't find a few more birds. Sounds good. Sounds good to me. And, and I only have one more question to close this out. Parker, you kind of went o- over on the other side, and you got a dog without a tail. You got the short hair. When are you going to get Philip a dog with a tail? Oh, I, we're going to find one for him. Uh, it's it, You know, it, it's great to be able to hunt with setters and, and short hairs both. It, it, it really is. And... So Philip needs a setter. He needs one of those. <laughs> Some of his best friends have got setters, and and he, he really he really needs those. No, now, I'm no breed, comment from Philip. I'm, on I'm that not breedlining. And Philip's dog Dixie is is she is Dixie is a great dog. Not only is she a good bird dog, but she's a great dog as a short hair, and I like them. I've just raised with setters, and I'll always love them. Yep. No word from Philip. He's trying to avoid this one. <laughs> well, he'll mature in. I don't, don't want to step on anybody's toes. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll leave it at that. All right. Well, again, we appreciate you having us up and showing us around. And uh, hopefully we can get on some birds tomorrow and close the weekend out strong. So. Sure, sure thing. Maybe we'll might even be able to pull the trigger. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, guys. We appreciate it. Yeah, yep. Good to be here. Yeah. Right. Thanks for the invite. 
Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukonuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pups start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.